UTSA's Neuroscience Podcast. Um, our guest today is Jim Lechleiter, who's Professor of Cellular and Structural Biology at the UT Health Sciences Center at San Antonio. Hi, Jim. Hello, Selma. He uh, has a bunch of other titles as director of things that I won't mention, but I will mention that he's director and co-founder of Astrocyte Pharmaceuticals, which we might even talk about. Who knows? Um, so Jim's lab is focused on determining... Uh, the mechanisms by which astrocytes mediate neuroprotective processes in ischemia, injury, and aging, and how they may present new strategies and targets for clinical therapy. So around the room, we've got kind of a big group. Uh, we've got Matt Winnott. Hello. We've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Gary Galfo. Hello. It's a motley crew here. And we've, from the UT Health Sciences Center, we've got uh, Michael Beckstead. It's good to be here, Selma. So I'm so excited to be discussing astrocytes in our series, and it's my expectation that this will be a recurring theme in future podcasts. So, and I just want to mention to our listeners, so historically, there's been a widely held bias among some that astrocytes are just brain glue that keep house for neurons. Um, so that idea, thankfully, has been shifting in the last 10 years, and and we're really starting to appreciate astrocytes as key players in many aspects of neural health and function and stability. So we're here in a room full of bona fide serious physiologists and one developmental genetic person. So I'm, I'm hoping that in the course of hearing about your incredible models and tools that we can touch on how understanding astrocyte function might recast some of our thinking about synapses and circuits too. So that's sort of the, at the, at the sure. end I want to get to that. But I do want to talk about your work. And so for our listeners' benefit, who who may not necessarily be up to speed on astrocytes, I just want to have you um, say a few words about your, your worldview and with astrocytes. Um, you've got a few different models that target astrocytes, uh, different aspects of their function in injury and aging. Um, can you say something about astrocytes and about their response to injury and what this tells us maybe about the core function of astrocytes, if there is one? So it's a big question. Yeah. Right. So, so, take so it yeah, piece by piece. Piece by piece. Well, I mean, I think that statistic that is always great to sort of you know throw out there is that there are more astrocytes than neurons in the brain, which I always thought quite fascinating. And all your neuronal connections are actually in contact quite intimately with um, uh, processes of the astrocytes. So, so it's all. I consider them sort of overseers of the health of the brain, um, when, and so they respond to whatever is sort of the immediate um, physiology. So whether it's pathophysiology or normal physiology, they're responding to, in, in large part, they're responding to neuronal activity. Uh, but we've been very interested in how they respond to normal, to, to abnormal, you know, Injured models, and so so I think it's been recognized for a long time that even in cell culture, if you put astrocytes in with neurons, the neurons last and are can last under oxidative stress, any kind of damage conditions much longer. And even like one astrocyte, say, in, a, in like a, a full culture of um, neurons, can actually um, make them much more resistant to oxidant stress. So, so it's really they have a huge impact on, on taking care of neurons. And in that particular case, it's probably because their neurons are very dependent on them for many factors. In that case, it's actually an oxidant stress, glutathione, uh, to reduce oxygen, you know, um, 
uh, antioxidant uh, molecule that actually is very important for, for scavenging um, reactive oxygen species. And, and so. is this something that's just released constitutively, or is there a communication? So there's a communication. It's actually a bit of a complex step. So it turns out that, that um, both astrocytes and neurons can actually make glutathione, but it turns out that the, the um, precursors for it actually is taken up by astrocytes, and they actually will make glutathione release it outside their cells, and then actually glutathione is broken down, and then parts of it is taken back up, given the neurons, and then they make their own glutathione. Um, so they're very dependent. If you interfere with their process at all, um, uh, really neurons are, are in much worse shape for it. You know? so, so that's just one simple thing that they actually do. We've been interested sort of in, again, how important the astrocyte is in sort of maintaining the health of the brain after injury. You know? So it's not just the oxidative stress. It's during normal physiological um, conditions, too. They're, they're important for things like uh, after intense neuronal activity to sort of make sure that the entire area settles down. So things like ion homeostasis, you know, there's been too much, you know, firing of the neurons, or just the right amount, depends how you think about it. Um, or there's been a lot of transmitter that's been released. The, the astrocytes are largely responsible for clearing that down and sort of getting the activity back to normal, or sort of resting levels, I would say. So... So tell us about injury. So what sorts of injury are you looking at and what? So injury is a pretty broad category, and we've been doing more acute injuries. So, so things like um, interfering with the blood flow, like a traumatic brain injury or a stroke, those have been really major focuses of what we do. Uh, I mean, I think uh, we've been very interested um, in things uh, that hit the news a lot, uh, um, repetitive brain injuries like football players suffer or people in the medical field or in, the, or in the military field. And I've always been just how the brain works too, but it's been quite clear there's a correlation between being hit in the head too many times and developing late onset uh, dementias. And so part of our interest is to see whether or not the astrocytes, which we know have played very important processes in healing, whether or not they could sort of prevent some of these long-term you know, injuries. And our evidence does suggest that they can. I mean, I'm jumping ahead of the story here a little bit. Acutely, what we're trying to do is to find out, just after a stroke, if you interfere and include blood flow in the brain, um, neurons die pretty quickly. Um, but you can slow that process or make it less severe if you can uh, activate the astrocytes. And, and, and one way we can sort of test to see whether the astrocytes are activated, there's a particular response called reactive gliosis, um, um, reactive astrocytes. And so they sort of become super activated, and they'll secrete lots of factors, um, and they will try to get control of the situation again. So act, is activated a technical term that means something specific, or is, does it just mean that they release a lot of stuff? It actually means something specific. At least what it's agreed upon is that the astrocytes increase in size. They can double in size sometimes. There's actually a cytoskeletal structure that actually increases uh, the classic marker. It's called um, uh, gliofibrillary acidic protein. It's GFAP. And it's more of a structural protein, so that by itself probably doesn't have a whole lot of physiological function other than structure. But it's an indication that the astrocytes has sort of, you know, reacted to an injury, and, and they know that something has to be done to sort of help things out. So they'll release lots of different factors subsequent to that. But it's sort of a marker of an injury response. But in, in, in the short term, it's a good thing to happen. You know, it's, it's, um, it's pretty much agreed that reactive glulosis is actually a protective response to begin with, okay? So you've got two options. Either you can sort of activate them more, or you can limit the damage that's causing the initial sort of reaction to actually increase. 
miraculous results. Jim, you mentioned earlier that uh, that uh, um, the transfer of certain molecules from the astrocyte to to the neuron glutathione was, uh, I think you mentioned, was that. Uh, so during these process, this injury process, are there certain um, molecules that are known to be transferred to the neuron that is neuroprotective rather than just, for example, preventing inflammation and things like that? Is there an actual physical um, uh, uh, non-cell autonomous interaction between so the two? So, I mean, so glutathione is the classic sort of non-enzymatic um, molecule, but there are other factors like uh, brain-derived uh, uh, growth factor, nerve growth factor, BD, BDNF. Um, that's actually considered a, a protective um, factor, too. Cytokines, as, as you're probably familiar, are actually a whole class of compounds that have a lot of downstream targets, but basically they're, they're, they cause inf- inflammation, and it's called both pro-inflammatory and inflammatory uh, responses. And to be honest, I'm not an expert in that area. Um, it's quite clear that there are short-term responses that the astrocytes will respond to, so acute things that will happen over the course of minutes to maybe a few hours, which they'll reestablish you know, the local environment. Longer-term things that you're talking about, um, like growth factors, are, are these uh, cytokines. They occur over more, I'd say, days or certainly tens of hours, something like that. Um, the longer-term res- responsibility of the astrocyte is quite interesting, but we haven't actually gone there. It's a harder question to to ask, you know. Um, we certainly know it's easy to measure, you know, one of the issues you always run into, if you want to test, you know, the importance of a particular cell type, you know, you inhibit it, right? You know, or you, or you blade it. Um, but that's kind of a severe thing to do for astrocytes in general. Um, um, so, so what we've tried to do is to pick off particular processes. So we've gone in to try and look at can we interfere with their ability to control the ion environment, which in this particular case might be the potassium levels that could affect the excitability of the neurons, you know, how much they fire, or, or the ability of the astrocytes to control edema, which is actually very important. Um, after things like stroke, edema gets out of hand, right? So, so it's because... The astrocytes actually, because they've lost oxygen and glucose from the loss of blood supply, they can't maintain their energy levels or ATP levels well. Um, and so because of that, they can't maintain their ion gradients. And because of that, potassium gets too high, the neurons will fire. And because that happens, there's too much uh, glutamate neurotransmitter release, and you get these sort of cascading damaging effects, uh, secondary injury effects that occur. So it's not just the initial blast, the initial trauma, the initial stroke, but secondary to all that, once these initial damaging primary injury is over, it's secondary injury can really enlarge all the different... So those seem like a lot of uh, uh, downstream effects. Has your study or in your field, have you identified perhaps a molecule or something that's upstream that regulates all these downstream effects? Yes, we have. You know, so so, so actually, that's actually nice part. Thank you. Thank you for a nice, okay. nice setup. So 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 that was actually part of the company that we formed a while ago, and, and and I'm sort of the classic academic here, where I didn't think it was actually um, appropriate for for uh, scientists to actually start companies. Okay, and I'm still not entirely convinced of it. You know, but but it's turned out to be somebody's got to develop some of these uh, very interesting ideas. So so long story short, 
we discovered uh, a process in the, in the astrocytes that could force them to make more ATP. And so the, the critical um, energy producers in the cells are called mitochondria, which most of your listeners are probably familiar with. And, and so they're very efficient to make an ATP. And, and so we were able to stimulate a class of receptor called the G-protein coupled receptor. When we did that, we could inject this treatment, this small molecule. It would force the astrocyte to make more ATP. And that sort of little bit of actually energy production was enough to sort of allow them to more um, efficiently carry out all their energy-dependent functions. So all these things that I mentioned that are downstream all take energy. Um, nothing's free in the brain. And so they could do a better job of maintaining their ion gradients. They could control uh, the transmitter releases, the excitability of the neurons better. They could actually... What is the endogenous ligand for this receptor? So the endogenous ligand is actually ADP primarily, adenosine diphosphate. Um, so ATP, it was just got a little bit confusing. So this is actually, it's making ATP inside the cells from mitochondria, but the extracellular um, uh, ligand is actually ADP. Um, it turns out that ATP is very frequently in many neurons as actually a co-transmitter, co-neurotransmitter. Um, ATP has got these two phosphates on it, three phosphates, the minute it's released, there's a whole class of receptors, pure energetic receptors, um, that are both what's called G-protein coupled receptors. They're, they're, they're longer-term occur over seconds when they're activated, as well as short-term um, ionotropic or ion channels um, called P2X receptors. You know, so, so in both cases, you have ATP, ADP, and then AMP, and then eventually adenosine. So it actually you keep losing phosphates. Very rapidly, it turns out, in the cell. And when that happens, you've got a multitude of different receptors that can both be good and bad. So, so the interesting thing about ADP, you don't get the specificity, you know, that you want. So so our ATP, um, you can activate what's called these P2X receptors. And I'm, I'm getting a bit specific, but these are ion channel receptors uh, that are cationic, and they will let calcium into the actual cell. So it turns out that they're kind of a lot like NMDA receptors, which are ion channels that... Um, essentially lead to large increases of calcium inside the cell that can lead to cell death. Um, so, so one of the issues about, you know, how do you get specificity of signaling is actually a real major issue. You know, so, so ATP by itself, you know, we think is a protective response, but we've gone in to try and say, well, if we just put ATP in the brain, is that going to be good or bad for the system? Um, it was hard to do in the brain because, that's you know, we couldn't just inject it or we didn't just inject it. We did do the experiment in cell culture. So it turns out that if we um, just have astrocytes alone and we put in ATP, because ATP will activate these receptors too, it was protective. The astrocytes could actually um, uh, last longer, be more resistant to oxidant stress. If we put in astrocytes and neurons, the neurons did better too. If we put on neurons by themselves, actually they died. There, it was more. It was actually a, a toxic. It was actually a damaging reagent for them. And we presume that was because of actually this, this ionotropic receptor. So. so in your talk, you highlighted a lot of the therapeutic benefits of you know, this pure energetic uh, receptor you know, activation. Um, and I was just kind of curious, and this is after sort of acute you know, stimulation, but you also highlight something of if you end up, you know, the vasculature problem. So if, you know, in stroke, you end up having, you know, acute, you know, damage to the blood flow, you 
you know, ha- can potentially have these, you know, these lesions, and you can you can block that by uh, purinergic receptor activation. Now, um, I was curious if there's potentially long-term benefits. You know, um, sort of can heart health influence brain health? And have you sort of looked at long-term consequences of activating these, you know, purinergic, you know, receptor activation? Is that a way that might be beneficial in sort of even a long-term type way? Are there, you know, sort of neurodegenerative you know, issues related to, you know, cardiac issues as well. Before you answer that, so I want you to tell the story, the rest of the story that he just told in your own terms. So what do we see when we add this purinergic agonist? What what happens? What's the reversal? So, and then so, we can talk about that. Sorry. So we're talking <laughs> the stroke model. So, so in the stroke model, we know that when we occlude uh, cells, eventually start to lice, die, um, and eventually get a, a large region that's necrotic tissue that actually is dead tissue. When we stimulate and add this agonist, uh, what we're seeing is actually the lesion size is much reduced um, and actually can be sort of stopped from increasing um, anymore depending on how quickly we get to the actual treatment um, protocol. So, so we think what we're doing short-term is preventing simple cell lysis. We're preventing... Um, uh, sort of metabolic stress over your overall system that sort of controls um, long-term health. Now, what I think you're leading to is that once, so we have a treatment, which is what we're trying to develop for this this idea of a company here, is, is that we think will can be added anywhere within the first 24 hours, maybe even 48 hours, and can have benefit that will lead to smaller infarct size, smaller brain lesions. But long-term is an interesting question. So so uh, a lot of times, uh, say military personnel, even football players, um, they'll injure themselves, but they sort of man up, you know, and, and they don't get it addressed. You know, they don't actually think, well, I can just shake it off and I'll be fine. Um, and, and even so, soldiers will come to the actual hospital. They won't come in after the first explosion. They'll, they'll just sort of, you know, shake it off. But then the second time they get hit, their headache is actually much worse. Um, and then they want treatment, and there actually are very few treatments for headaches at this particular point in time. Um, and then uh, what's really been quite uh, receiving a lot of attention uh, in the news and actually has been quite consistently shown now is that very long-term, and we're talking years, um, they can have significant behavioral um, changes that start to occur, degenerative changes that occur, that have now been correlated with actually um, anatomical changes in, in um, uh, neuronal death. And, and so... So this is what people refer to as um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, and so football players have gotten the news a lot for this because of their head injuries and, and the helmets. So we know that if we, we we have evidence that in the mouse model that we're using, which is another um, acute injury, traumatic brain injury, which is actually a hemorrhagic stroke where we're actually having blood loss, that we have lots of swelling. A lot of the same symptoms uh, of damage that we'll see acutely whether it's stroke or trauma, are very similar. But but what I'm trying to get to the point is that is that when we look long term in these mice, they actually start developing some of the same symptoms as the um, um, football players, where actually they have um, uh, mood changes, um, they have coordination problems, and presumably if we test it, we haven't quite done it yet. They'll have memory problems too, you know, some issues, some degenerative problems, and so those that we treated acutely anyway, um, right after their traumas. Um, didn't develop these symptoms. And so there's always the issue, how quickly can we get to the um, animal 
person. Um, and so can we have a beneficial effect by stimulating this pathway? And I think certainly if we limit the damage, it's going to be a good thing. Um, the question we're very interested in is whether or not if we treat them, say, three months later, which is when, say, the military veterans come in and say, I've got horrible headaches that have developed. Can you do anything? And now it's a whole other problem because that initial damage phase is gone, you know, and so we can no longer, it's probably not swelling in the brain anymore. So some other sort of cascades kicked in. And so the question, what is that, you know? And so the short answer is we don't know. Um, it's a bit of a black box, not a bit of a box. It is a black box as far as what's taking place between these repetitive injuries and things go quiescent. And then 10 years later, you start developing um, uh, neurological symptoms. Um, there's always the presumption that it is some sort of inflammatory response, you know, um, but it's harder to pick this out. So morphologically, people are not seeing a lot in the brain. There's been acutely, you'll see changes actually in stress proteins, tauopathies, things like that, that actually can go up. So one of the things that we want to do then is to, if we wait three months, um, we will treat, can we actually have beneficial effect at that point in time? And earlier on, we couldn't do these experiments because we have the agonist that we were, our initial agonist that we um, were working with was actually um, membrane impermeant. Uh, couldn't get into the brain. It was actually a um, uh, blood-brain barrier um, impenetrant. And, and that is not a problem acutely because it actually injuries will actually break that down for us. But now we have actually a, a new generation that actually gets across the membrane. And so we can actually do that experiment, you know, um, so I'm curious what you said earlier about reactive gliosis. So that that seems to be a is it a very specific response? Because it seems like you could it's 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 a, a healthy brain response, and there are degrees of it. And at some point, the scales get tipped into something really pathological that causes some sort of downstream degeneration or just full blown injury type thing. But are we to understand that some of the homeostatic stuff that's going on is just some degree of the same reactive process? It's a very good question, and the short answer is I'm not quite sure. Um, so, so, so there's two ways to look at this. One is um, are we stimulating the astrocytes to be more reactive so that they then take care of the injury better versus um, we are addressing the injury in that the astrocyte does not become as reactive? Or are we shutting off the astrocyte? So now, so, so is there a point at which the reactive gliosis is actually causing more harm? And then, if we stimulate them, can we turn, shut them off? Um, I don't think it's the latter. I think the more likely thing is that we're limiting the damage, and so that there's less need for reactive gliosis for the astrocytes to supercharge uh, and and sort of start. Um, it's almost like some of the astrocytes, uh, when you get, say, a reactive, um, not a reactive, um, uh, a histamine response where essentially you can get the mast cells or a massive allergic reaction, where all of a sudden they just kind of uh, go overboard as far as how they're reacting. I think at some point, cellular responses can get out of hand, you know. Um, and so it's possible at that time that longer, if you spread that out for an astrocyte, clearly if reactive astrocytes are um, present over the course of the animal's um, lifetime or people's lifetime, it's certainly indicative that there's an injury or an inflammatory response going on. At some point, it is quite clear that the, that the gliosis is too long. There are clearly evidence that 
that some of the reactive astrocytes actually become um, fibrous, and they actually will change and become scar formation, and they actually will block um, the, the um, movement or actually growth of axons over a damaged area. So there's actually multiple... Reactive glossa is a very complex process, and I'm not an expert in that area. Um, people would say that early on, I mean, broadly speaking, it's a reactive, it's a protective response early on, and long-term it can actually cause damage. You know? So it's actually overreactive. So can you mimic um, uh, astrogliosis in culture? And how does the uh, uh, purinergic system, ATP, ADP, affect that? So we process. wanted to do that. We were going to try and do that. Part of the problem is, is that cultured astrocytes by themselves are considered a bit of a reactive astrocyte. Um, and so that if you looked at astrocytes, they tend to be um, GFAP levels are, are, are upregulated. So, so I think the experiment to do, and we actually haven't done this, is to um, work with primary astrocytes but frequently what you want to do in cells is you actually uh, grow them to confluency, um, and then actually you rely on contact inhibition. Uh, so cells will actually stop growing when they touch one another, and astrocytes are just like that. So, so there are people in the field now that are actually um, taking advantage of the fact of contact inhibition, maybe much more equivalent to the resting brain, you know, the unactivated astrocyte. I'm not quite sure then. So, so we have not done these experiments, you know, um, we have not, if, if we, have we done the exact experiment? So, so what you're suggesting is if we culture the astrocytes, they're already reactive. If we treat with our purinergic agonist, do the GFAP levels go down? I'm not sure we've done exactly that experiment. What we've done is to culture, we've not measured GFAP levels. We've co-cultured astrocytes and neurons. We know that when we cause a particular stress, such as killing cells, that if we stimulate them, there's less dead cells. That's as close as we've gotten. We have not looked at the GFAP in, in cells. It's an interesting experiment. So these are all abnormal conditions. So I think, at least for me, to get a better understanding of the pathology, um, I'm very naive, I didn't know this, that ADP can be a, uh, an actual uh, ligand that's involved mm. in normal signaling. So in, in the area of the brain or in the area of, uh, um, uh, of some pathology, it's a very complex network of cells. It includes neurons, glia, microglia, and the vasculature. So under normal processes and abnormal, where is the source of ADP um, that's used to communicate amongst this network of cells? So even that's complicated? All right, so... so, so. There was a time, so, so clearly there is transmitter, there is ATP that is released from neurons um, in many neuronal presynaptic elements. So that when, when a neurotransmitter like glutamate is released, sometimes uh, there is ATP that's released too, and it's considered to be active. However, astrocytes themselves can release ATP. Um, it turns out that, that um, one of the, and then ATP that's released, so as soon as astrocytes release ATP, and there's some suggestion it can be calcium activated, but there's a class of channels called heme channels. But but they tend to be ATP permeant, so calcium or ATP will go from the inside, which is minimolar concentrations of ATP, to the extracellular side, which can then in turn lead to actually stimulation of purinergic receptors. There were some really interesting experiments done in the early 90s 
to show that in cell culture, um, uh, that calcium waves would actually occur and flow across um, a culture of ast- um, primary astrocytes. And, and so what they were able to show is just a mechanical perturbation, just a single electrode of the middle astrocyte in the field of view, and these cells are loaded with calcium indicator dye, that, that when you hit them, you get a wave of calcium that would propagate out from that injury site. Subsequent follow-up experiments show that that propagation was due to actually a G-protein couple. It was ATP being released from the cells. It was activating a G-protein couple receptor, uh, P2Y1, um, and then actually would lead to more IP3, which is a downstream uh, G-protein coupled signaling molecule that releases more calcium, activates some of these actual um, um, hemichannels, more ATP is released, and then activates more ion channels and actually sort of propagates um, along. Um, it's actually a very interesting mechanism for propagating signals inside cells. And so some very early work we did in our lab was to talk about astrocytes as an excitable cell. Right? So, so broadly speaking, the reason neurons are considered excitable is because voltage-activated channels actually leads to positive feedback, and you get the classic action potential. Um, so you need a positive feedback step. And in the case of astrocyte, or neurons, it's actually sodium coming in, depolarizing, leading to more open ion channels and a further propagation, uh, opening of ion channels uh, down, say, a, a neuronal membrane. In the case of astrocytes, it turns out that the release process of intracellular calcium release, IP3-gated calcium release, has got a positive feedback step too. It's calcium-induced calcium release. It's about a thousand-fold slower than neuronal propagation, but you still get waves of actually excitation. So... So in a very um, real sense, astrocytes are also excitable cells, just not voltage excitability. And so these long-range calcium signals are quite interesting. So then the question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? So, so, so um, and the short answer is, in small doses, I think it is a good thing. That's what we think we're doing with our stimulation. We're releasing a little bit of calcium inside cells, which we can use to stimulate their mitochondrion ATP production. Too much of a good thing is always a bad thing, so prolonged activation of this pathway is probably toxic. We know calcium, if it's prolonged in the cytosol, is going to be actually damaging. So, so the Could this at all be related to this, pro- this wave-like thing that you, you've discovered in, mm-hmm. in culture? Could this be at all related to the propagation of tissue damage from a local source where you have, uh, you know, uh, in time, there's a spread of... Um, I guess apoptosis of neurons and glial cells from so, those. So, so apoptosis is the different time scale. Apoptosis occurs again over hours. So this this wave, these calcium waves are occurring over seconds. All right. So so if neuronal activity is actually on the millisecond time scale, you know, calcium wave activity is on the seconds time scale. Apoptosis is on the hours, you know, time scale. Um, actually, one of the original experiments that, that really got me interested in calcium signaling and astrocytes to begin with was actually a, a very well-known scientist at um, Stanford, uh, Steve Smith, if you're familiar with him. Um, he's a scientist that actually has uh, always done beautiful work with um, a microscopy, um, and he's always trying crazy experiments. Um, and this is work after when I was a new assistant professor, and, and he had come, uh, to, uh, I'd done all the work in, in frog eggs and calcium waves in, in a single cell. And he came with actually a, a mouse um, brain slice. It was just a regular coronal section of a mouse brain, and he had loaded it up with a calcium indicator dye. And so, so all the cells then, he's got a nice video of this, all the cells are loaded with an indicator dye, and these indicator dyes increase their fluorescence, 
um, when calcium increases. And so he then did an electrical stimulation, uh, just uh, essentially depolarized the entire uh, slice. And what you might expect, there was a very rapid, bright flash uh, of fluorescence indicating that all the neurons had fired. And I thought, well, that's great. You know, I kind of expected that because that was sort of basic physiology. Then, then about five to ten seconds later, the entire slice started going just mad with calcium waves all over the place. It was the secondary long-term effects of actually the calcium wave activity between astrocytes in that time. So it was like a different time frame, but it lasted for tens of seconds. It was like a half a minute of activity, one simple flash of neuronal activity. And we think in that particular time, there's been some follow-up experiments by some scientists at UCLA, and this was, again, early 90s, quite some time ago. But basically, a lot of the excitatory activity that you think of being due to glutamate release leads to this intracellular excitability in astrocytes from this um, G-protein-coupled release, and, and that actually has worked by Andrew Charles and um, uh, Andrew Charles and Anne Corneal Bell and Mike Sanderson. But, but, it, but what, what I wanted to stress here is that is that this amazing sort of different sort of epochs of time scales, right? You know, that there's very interesting, very rapid signaling going on, very long-term sort of what I'd call long-term for me, seconds, tens of seconds, you know, on, on the calcium signaling scale. And I think that's the process we're actually dealing with with some of these injury processes, you know, so so that we're actually sort of starting to heal in that area very quickly. So, so these, ca- these slow calcium waves, these are dependent on the neuronal activity in some... Once form. they're initiated inside uh, a complex preparation, it's hard to dissociate... Uh, that's an interesting question. No, they wouldn't. No, would you still see after simulation? So, so you would still see it because the astrocytes themselves will propagate. You do not need the neurons uh, to propagate this inside because you can do it in just cell culture. So, it simply, is the neuron cultures by themselves. I'd almost want to bet that they've done the experiment in tritototoxin where they've um, uh, essentially poisoned, uh, stopped all the neuronal activity. Uh, so, so, so you don't need, in the case of that situation, uh, glutamate to be replaced. I mean, I think once you do, if you do have a very massive release of glutamate from neurons, they, the glutamatergic release can lead to um, these metabotropic receptors, the G-protein receptor activation, which then can lead to a lot of calcium wave activity. So what, does, um, what do astrocytes do in a healthy environment? So... They do lots of things. You know? <laughs> so we, we talk a lot about injuries and stroke, and and I think the closest thing we came to uh, healthy physiology is is still kind of a homeostasis thing, yeah. where they just sort of prevent neurons from firing too much, or preventing so, the the, uh, the effects of firing too much. But are they actually involved in? Circuitry of the brain, or or or, or do, do they, do they have, are they involved in any kind of signaling and of any sort? So, um, so as I'm sure you're aware, the, the the synapses in the brain now are used to be considered in early textbooks that have the presynaptic element and have the postsynaptic element of the neuron, and the neuron was only the the only cell type that was depicted. But it's quite clear the astrocytes will wrap around these, um, and so now it's called the tripartite, you know, um, um, synapse. So, so basically, a very important function of the astrocyte, especially for your excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate, is that once it's released into this um, synaptic cleft and actually is trying to excite the postsynaptic neuron, 
It's got to be cleared out of there, otherwise you have too much activity. And so the astrocyte is the only cell type there that actually clears out this neurotransmitter. And so basically, the astrocyte controls the duration um, of the electrical signal, so how responsive the electrical activity is, you know, how, how um, long-lasting it is, is, is critically controlled by the um, um, astrocyte. I think that short-term control of the concentration of the neurotransmitter is quite critical. But it's still sort of like, in that sense, I think that's still a safe way to talk about astrocytes, you know, where it's not so surprising in the sense that astrocytes, again, are sort of cleaning up after neurons, and we're trying to get the, you know, the astrocyte out in front a little bit, okay? You know, <laughs> even just a little bit, you know? So I think, I think there is clear evidence now that, that astrocytes themselves even after sequestering some of this neurotransmitter, can actually release it. They can convert it, you know, and actually export it in an inactive form like glutamine. But they can certainly release glutamate by themselves, and, and there's evidence that they can actually control, at least at some situations, um, uh, uh, electrical activity of the synapse too. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done, you know, as far as how astrocytes can control the activity of the neurons, and it might be different timescales, um, but this, you know, people have been looking for this pretty hard because it's actually a very complex um, level of activity uh, that's going on in the area. So, so I think normal physiology um, is having clean, crisp, fast electrical activity, and without the astrocyte, you wouldn't get that. Okay, so that's very important. Do they have? Are they postsynaptic to anything? Is there more of a Direct so, communication between astrocytes and neurons. So, I um, so that's been done artificially, uh, but I'm not aware that there's actually been any uh, known. There's certainly nothing equivalent to a postsynaptic density in astrocytes that I've ever seen um, occurring. There certainly is evidence, depending on how you want to think about this, of receptors, even glutaminergic receptors like ion channels in astrocyte membranes that are sensitive to ion chan uh, to, to neurotransmitter release. That, that is, so it's, astrocytes don't just clean up after neurons. They are also got receptors to transmitters, and so they are doing things in response to transmitter release from neurons um, over very broad areas. Um, so it's not just in the local vicinity. Um, it's also um, over large regions, I guess is a way to say it. So um, it's an interesting they're laid out quite a bit differently. The one thing that's, I think, important to realize the difference between astrocytes and neurons in the brain is that astrocytes, even though they signal to one another, they tend to be individual elements. You know, they're, they're not touching one another. There's some evidence that they actually have they electrical have couple. with each other. Maybe a little bit in a while. Okay, they, they do. Okay, okay, okay. okay. <clears throat> okay, okay. <clears throat> okay. So, so, yeah. Okay, there are, there's a few, but not compared to neuron, neurons, they'll have a few, you know, okay, but, but I think... Classically speaking, the astrocyte is the electrically coupled organelle, you know, suscitium, you know, in the brain, where essentially they are, if they are not coupled, that's a pathological condition, you know, so they act as a unit, you know, to the point where to depolarize them, you've got to depolarize the entire mass. You can't I was wondering about that. The gap junctions, if in the spreading of pathology, sorry, Carl, let's get back to We're back pathology. to pathology. Here we go. But, but let's imagine non-pathological signals also spreading among astrocytes. So there's a there's a spatial scale over which that happens. It's really important in your stroke model. 
Mm-hmm. They're sort of defining that spatial scale. And I'm wondering, when the cells are connected to each other by gap junctions, are the dying ones being propped up by the live ones at the edge, and there's some kind of... The scale is controlled that way? It's exactly what's happening. Okay, so, so, so the classic case there is called spatial buffering. All right, so this was worked out in the retina, um, in which what... The astrocyte, this goes to the pathophysiology in the sense that the astrocyte's got a very critical responsibility of moving potassium back into the cell and sort of clearing out the extracellular space, the ion homeostasis. So the local damage ordinarily leads to a loss of potassium from the cell. And, and for classic electrophysiology, you would expect that cell would depolarize then. It turns out because all its neighbors are coupled to it, as, as I'm sure you're aware, um, they actually clamp it. They actually hold that cell at its resting potential. And so the end effect of that means is that actually potassium then, because it's literally clamped like an electrophysiologist do, will actually cause potassium from the outside of the cell to move into that astrocyte and then into that damaged astrocyte through its gap junctions to its neighbors and actually spatially buffer. So I'm thinking that spatial scale might also apply in normal, non-pathological case. So if we're imagining some astrocyte is helping to control synaptic transmission, then it's coupled to all of its neighbors. And so there's a spatial scale over which that... So I think an interesting case of that might be, I don't know, potassium... I don't know that you can move potassium without actually a potassium gradient change, but things like a calcium wave can do that, you know. And so, so there's been some great earlier work showing, again, in cell culture, if you stimulate locally, um, just with not mechanically, but if I actually put on a little blast of transmitter that activates a G-protein receptor, the question is, how far does the calcium wave go, all right? There were some earlier studies with, uh, I think, just IP3, it was like about six or seven cells. So, so, so it's a relatively small um, uh, range. So it was not, you know, infinite where you'd say like an actual goes over, you know, uh, a millimeter, you know, hundreds of microns anyway, you know. Um, and the answer said it's like, you know, uh, half a dozen cell bodies, at least inside the, the cell. And I know Phil Hayden in Tufts University showed me this movie once where he was actually looking at extracellular ATP, and I don't remember how he stimulated it, but the same sort of thing. There was local calcium signaling going on for about three, four, five cells diameters, and then it would die off. So, so does that mean that like a synaptic, something synaptic happening on this dendrite of that neuron is going to now spread to some other dendrite of some other neuron, six or seven astrocyte diameters so, away? So, and this is a method of... Communication. It actually is really a really interesting possibility because, I mean, clearly, then the question is, well, let's say that the, the longer, the, the range of signaling on that scale would be calcium waves, right, you know, that could possibly move it, say, four or five cell diameters away. And then the question is, if a calcium wave gets to the end, what does it do? And so if it's um, similar to the mechanism we've seen in cell culture, it, one thing it can do is actually stimulate the mitochondria. All right. It can certainly do a calcium release inside the cell is very different than calcium coming in from the plasma membrane as far as where it's sequestered inside cells. So then it puts everything in play. Then it's ATP production. Um, and then ATP production can lead to uh, many energy-dependent downstream uh, effects. So I know that um, um, certainly in the case of... Um, Certainly in the case of neurons, we know that there's IP3 dependent, you know, um, um, effects in post-synaptic, uh, post-synaptic membranes. I'm going to get myself in trouble here with long-term potentiation and 
depression and all these different things. But certainly there are intracellular effects here. I would imagine that, you know, no, nothing that I'm aware of has sort of reported a similar sort of long-term adaptation, say, of, of an astrocyte, but I might be almost willing to bet that, that there'd be something like that. Um, I was just thinking about pure distance. Like in the in nerve, in neuronal networks, we don't imagine locality to mean very much because the neurons are connected in specific ways that don't necessarily have to do with nearest neighbors. So if this neuron makes a synapse specifically 200 microns away, then something that's 100 microns from this neuron has less in common with it yeah. than something that's 200 microns away. Well, so the, but in an astrocyte syncytion, everything is just pure distance. It's, it's as the crow flies. The right? interest- and it's a whole other way of organizing. And the other that. interesting point about that with the astrocyte syncytion is that they don't overlap their territories. So, so astrocytes will come right up to one another and touch. They literally will get their tiled in. And, and so they literally don't overlap. So when I say four or five cell distances, um, those cells, you know, um, they, like I said, they, don't, they, they actually mark out their own territory. They don't overlap the process. So I think it very much could be influencing sort of the local environment of, you know, they will wrap, they will contact hundreds of different, you know, um, processes from different neurons coming through potentially one astrocyte. But on the other side, you know, you can imagine that one particular synapse, as you said, in a single astrocyte, they then propagate that sort of response four of our cell diameters away would be impacting another group of, you know, neural activity. So So this this idea that that you've conjured up is not like science fiction, right? There's actually a a developmental phenomenon. But let me me try to... um, Reiterate what, you're, what, what I think you're trying to say, that uh, essentially, if you have a circuit of cells that's involved in a particular behavior circuit, that there are dedicated astrocytes um, that essentially aggregate or form syncytium that make that into a functional unit. Now that was... That was not what I was saying, but that's an interesting idea. <laughs> okay. That because, because, that because <laughs> a paper that was saying that, like, in, um, it was in Science, in, I think, last year, which was saying that in the um, in the striatum that you had astrocytes that were interacting only with D1-expressing neurons, and they didn't talk to the D2-expressing neurons, and the D2, uh, you know, interacting astrocytes were only affecting the D2. Sorry, dopamine. We've got a lot of dopamine people here. But the dopamine receptor... Um, you know, expressing neurons. And so I think that's interesting that if there are these waves, potentially the, the waves could be transmitted from astrocytes that are only affecting, you know, the D1, and they are going to be talking to potentially oh, other astrocytes that are only affecting, you know, uh, D1 expressing neurons. So rather, rather than just distance as the crow flies... It just right? becomes another network like the kind it becomes, of It becomes a kind of network, and that, that distance is actually a functional unit now. Yes, yes, yes. Well, is there, is there evidence that the gap junctions themselves are dynamically regulated? Because you can imagine there, there might be times where you would want a signal from a neuron going through the astrocytes and syncytum and ending up seven cell lengths away, and that there are times you might not want to do that. It seems like the way that plasticity might occur in the astrocyte network might be through the gap junctions. So, so this is interesting question, and I think it's still a very active area of investigation. So regulation of gap junctions has always been a mystery to me, because on one hand, everything that's been tested seems to go through them up to a certain cutoff molecular weight, but clearly they have specificity, too. So something does control their selectivity at some level, and, and I'm not uh, I'm not aware enough of this field, you know, um, expert in this field, to actually know specific examples. 
but almost certainly um, uh, there will be some regulation of the communication between cells. So, so the retina, for example, dopamine can alter that permeability of gap junctions between neurons. Those, those are the ones between neurons. It's a different molecule, but that's right. So, so, so just because a lot of the cell-to-cell coupling um, has always been done, it seems like, in neurons. So they've tried to do it, or oocytes. So I actually don't know about astrocytes, but it would be interesting to sort of look at that, you know. So um, so I, don't, I simply don't know the answer to that, you know. But like I said, if it's in neurons, it has to be astrocytes, too. How efficient are gap junctions at slow and low voltage? I mean, does, it doesn't matter, right, what the time scale is of electrical. Because, I mean, if we're talking about electrical coupling versus small molecules, I mean, it should be instantaneous and it should be, I mean, it should be the same dynamics as in neurons, right? sort of issue whether you think the gap junctions are for carrying electrical signals or for carrying small molecules from one cell to the other, because they do both. So, um, you know, in neurons, we used to think of them, we call them electrical synapses, right? We think, oh, well, they're just like synapses, only electrical. But uh, in the gap junctions between epithelial cells in the gut are not carrying action potentials. So... But, but it lets the whole tissue act as sort of like this decision to sort of propagate. Certainly calcium waves or something can propagate. I mean, most gap junctions can pass. Certainly IP3 is, is enough to go through it. Um, they will, at low concentrations, let calcium go through too. Although it's um, a higher concentration, they will shut down if too much calcium comes through. You know, that's sort of been a way to actually shut them down a little bit. Um, but I think it's pretty strong. I'm certainly... IP3, and I think it's pretty much agreed that calcium can go through at least at low concentrations. We could do a whole other podcast on the tools you use <laughs> to actually assay astrocyte happiness and health, and that would be incredibly interesting, but I think we're out of time today. It's clear we have a lot to talk about. Hopefully you'll be back to talk to us more about it. I would it. love to come back. So thanks, everyone, for joining us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop with... Uh, I actually didn't introduce myself this week again. I'm Salma Karashi. <laughs> I'm insane. Thanks, everyone. Okay.